The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a really fascinating guest. His name is Philip Tetlock. He is a professor of loosely, let's call it, psychology and political science at uh, both Wharton and the Arts and Sciences School at the University of, of Pennsylvania. Uh, professor Tetlock is really a fascinating guy. I first got to know of his work through a book he wrote well over a decade uh, ago called Expert Political Judgment, and it really cast an enormous shadow of doubt on all of these self-proclaimed experts, and, and he used the field of political science uh, as his basic investigation arena, but really it applied to everything from investing to economics to anywhere people prognosticate about the future and make um, confident-sounding assertions about what's going to happen one, two, five, ten years in the future, he pretty much destroyed that entire line of thinking and showed that the average so-called expert is no better than the average person walking down the street. That was well over a decade ago, and he tells an absolutely fascinating story of how we're familiar with DARPAnet, the defense uh, research project invented the internet and all these other really cool things. Well, the intelligence community has their own version of DARPA, and it's called IARPA. And they basically approached Professor Tetlock and said, we're fascinated by your work, and we'd like to find out if there are a way to, to either identify or develop those outliers in your studies who actually turned out to be pretty good forecasters. And as it turns out, forecasting is a humble skill that can be, I don't want to say learned by just about anybody, but you can undertake a number of steps to make your own forecasting better than it might have been otherwise. And it's fairly rational and fairly straightforward and really, really fascinating. And so you'll hear the story of of not only how the original book came about, uh, but how the new book came about and how he modified the previous view. It turns out, looking 12 months and, and further out, it's still pretty much a crapshoot. No one knows what's going to happen. But on shorter periods of time and on very, very specific things, you can undertake a number of steps that will help your own ability to discern probable outcomes be much better. I think if you're at all a... A statistics or probability wonk, you're going to find this absolutely fascinating. Anyone who's an investor or trader who who deals with market or economic forecasts might also find this to be really, really interesting. So without any further ado, my conversation with Professor Philip Tetlock. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, I have a special guest, 
Philip Tetlock, professor at the University of Pennsylvania, where he is cross-appointed at both the Wharton School and the School of Arts and Sciences, perhaps best known as the author of Expert Political Judgment, How Good Is It and How Can We Know?, which has won a number of awards. We'll talk about that in a little while. His most recent book, also winning accolades, is called Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction. The Economist magazine named it to one of its best book lists of 2015. Uh, Professor Tetlock is also a co-principal investigator of the Good Judgment Project, which is a multi-year study looking at improving the accuracy of probability judgments of real-world, high-stake events. Professor Tetlock, welcome to Bloomberg. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. So I'm familiar with you from your your earlier work, some of your earlier books, which I found absolutely fascinating. But let's just start this segment talking very, very generally. How come there's such an enormous appetite for political and economic punditry including all the predictions and forecasts that go with that? Well, it would be deeply dissonant for people to um, to come to the conclusion that uh, it doesn't matter who is elected president. It doesn't matter whether we raise taxes or cut them, whether we help the Ukraine or don't help the Ukraine or intervene in Syria or don't intervene in Syria or sign free trade pacts or don't do that. Um, we could just toss a coin because nobody is uh, on either side of the political spectrum has any demonstrated ability to assign good probabilities to the consequences of those policy options. Uh, so it's, to say that sounds nihilistic. It's dissonant. It, 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 um, people just don't want to live that way. People don't want to live that way. They, they, they want structure. And for the same reason uh, that people have turned to psychics and witch doctors and all sorts of things <laughs> over, over the past, we, 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 we seek guidance, predictive guidance. And, and we seek it, um, there is a demand for it, even when the supply of good forecasting is extremely limited. So we're recording this in, in the month of March 2016. Not too long ago, the cover of Barron's magazine has a picture of Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump. Which one is better for investors? And the usually conservative Barron's grudgingly says we think Hillary will be better for the stock market than than the Donald will. Don't we run the risk of putting way too much credit for good markets and good economies on the president and vice versa? When things are bad, don't we blame them too much for what's gone wrong? I think there's a great deal of superstitious reasoning about the impact that, that, that leaders have on organizational performance and also the impact that presidents have on, on the economy. Uh, the number of levers that presidents have to influence economic outcomes is, is quite limited. Um, but there is this deep intuition we have that leaders should be accountable for what happens on their watch, like the captain of a ship. It really doesn't matter uh, <laughs> whether a storm suddenly emerges out of nowhere. Uh, you you, you want to hold somebody accountable. And, and that, that is also deeply wired into us. Uh, so someone has to be accountable for it. So, so let's ask the obvious question. Why are experts so often so wrong in their forecasts? Well, there are a couple of theories about that. One is that the problem lies in the experts and how the experts think. Uh, and they could do better if they had used better analytical tools and were more self-critical and creative and thoughtful. And the other theory is that we just live in a radically unpredictable world uh, in which virtually nobody can do appreciably better than chance over extended periods of time. It's a world roiled by black swanish, dark gray swanish events. Uh, and uh, buyer beware. Fair enough. So let's talk about 
good judgment in predicting future events, or at least good analytical processes. And along that that line, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, what is the Breyer score and why is it so important? <laughs> the Breyer score. Well, the Breyer score was originally developed by some statisticians uh, working with meteorologists who wanted to keep score. And, and this goes all the way back to 1950. And it's a very simple idea. Uh, you want to minimize the gaps between probability and reality. So you code reality as either zero or one, depending on whether the event occurred or didn't occur. And you have probability judgments that range from zero to one. And you, uh, you get a really good Breyer score if you assign probabilities very close to zero to things that don't happen and probabilities very close to 1.0 to things that do happen. So it's your ability to be justifiably decisive, to make appropriately extreme judgments as the circumstances dictate, but to avoid driving off a cliff in the pursuit of that objective uh, by um, uh, making extremely overconfident judgments and saying 90% of things that don't happen and 10% of things that do. Well, once you're thinking in terms of probability, aren't you already light years ahead of the folks who are that decisive in making these bold outlier declarations? But isn't that much more nuanced and thoughtful than here's what's going to happen 100%? And of course, there's a, a big possibility that it just doesn't go that way. That's right. The probability scale in principle, if you want to look at it the way a mathematician would, is infinitely divisible. Um, there's an infinite number of points between 0 and 1.0. Now, obviously, people can't distinguish that many levels of uncertainty. Now, when uh, IBM's Watson was playing in the Jeopardy competition and beat the best human players, uh, you might have noticed that under its answers, occasionally, there would be this little uh, Bayesian probability estimate of how confident Watson at was in its answer, and I point eight seven three six two or something <laughs> Uh, so these these types of uh, form forms of artificial intelligence do try to uh, make extremely granular distinctions among degrees of uncertainty. Human beings can't make that many uh, distinctions among degrees of uncertainty in most environments. I mean, there are some environments where we can pull out a calculator and do it. If you, you can do it with card tricks and so forth, um, or poker. Um, but there are real, there are real limits on how granular you can become when it comes to whether there, uh, there's going to be a country leaving the eurozone in the next year, or whether there's going to be a violent Sino-Japanese clash in the East China Sea, or things of that sort. How many degrees can you distinguish there? Is it just yes or no? Is it yes, maybe no? Or can you make finer distinctions than that? I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Philip Tetlock of the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of a number of books, but the one I want to talk about right now was the award-winning Expert Political Judgment, How Good Is It and How Can We Know? Uh, this won a number of awards, the Grauemeyer Award for Ideas, Improving Political Order, the Woodrow Wilson Foundation Award for Political Science, and the Robert E. Lane Award for uh, a Political Psychology. Let, let's start with a, a quote of yours that I, I want to get some some feedback on. People who make predictions in their business, who appear as experts on TV, get quoted in newspaper articles, advise governments and businesses, are no better than the rest of us at making forecasts. How is that possible? It turns out that you, you reach the point of diminishing marginal returns for knowledge quite quickly in a lot of the domains we care the most about. Now, what does that mean? Um, 
When I started off doing research on political judgment, um, one of the greatest psychologists in, 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 on the planet uh, advised me, Daniel Kahneman. Uh-huh. And, the Nobel uh, Prize uh, uh, right. uh, award-winning right. uh, psychologist's most recent book, Thinking Fast. Or, and slow. Right. And, and it was a lunchtime conversation about 30 years ago in which he said rather casually that he thought that the experts I was interviewing from my early work on expert political judgment would have a hard time doing better than um, an attentive reader of the New York Times, um, which is, you know, a kind of a fancy way of saying more or less what you just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, he, he didn't know that as a fact. He, he was offering that as an hypothesis. Uh, and I think the right way to look at this is um, it is an hypothesis we can be continually testing. It's, it's not always going to be the case that experts are going to fall short, but they're going to fall short much more often than we would expect. Um, well, how much of that is random and uh, when they're right? And at a certain point, don't, don't the either investing or let's call it voting public have a reasonable belief that the supposed experts – know what they're talking about when they make a forecast. They expect them to be considerably better than, uh, I think, as as someone once called it, a, a dart-throwing monkey. Right. Well, there's a, there's the big question that we want the answer to, and then there are all these proxy cues that we kind of latch on to in the hope that those proxy cues will get us closer to the answer. So the big question we want the answer to, say, is whether the U.S. economy is going into recession next year, or whether the, uh, the, the Dow is going to be over 20,000 or under 15,000. There, there, there are some big questions that uh, people in the financial community or political community want answers to. And there are various people who pass through our lives, pass through your radio station, pass on the op-ed pages of newspapers, on television, and so forth, who offer opinions on these things. And they come with various types of credentials. You might say, so-and-so is the muckety-muck professor at blah 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 Or you might say that so-and-so won a Nobel Prize. Or you might say that so-and-so is worth $10 billion. Or you might, there are a lot of things you could say about them. I've interviewed all three of them. <laughs> and um, the, the interesting question is, uh, do those things give us much guidance on how accurate what the person's saying? So we're, we're hoping that they do. Where we're hoping to say, well, this person must know what he or she is talking about by virtue of the fact that this person has done X, Y, or Z. Uh, But the relationship between having done X, Y, or Z and accuracy is unknown. And the more honest we are about our ignorance, the more honest we are about when we're using proxy cues for judging how credible a source of advice is, the better off we're going to be in the long term. And and, and by the way, that applies to me too. That's fascinating. So so let me ask – when you put out expert political judgment, had anyone really done a full-on quantitative analysis of, of how accurate experts were, at least in the political field? Had, had anyone tried to figure out, hey, let's figure out exactly how right or wrong these folks are before? Interestingly, very little work had been done. There was a little bit of work uh, assessing the accurate. Well, there was quite a bit of work assessing the work of weather forecasters. Mm-hmm. There was uh, some work assessing the accuracy of expert bridge players, uh, and there was some work assessing the accuracy of economists. The Federal Reserve mm-hmm. uh, in, in Philadelphia and elsewhere had been doing some some studies along those lines, uh, but. As for assessing the accuracy of political pundits, at the time my book came out, I think there was extremely little work on that subject. So here's a quote from the book, and I, I want to get some um, feedback from you on this. When they're wrong, they're rarely held accountable, and they rarely admit it. They insist they were just off on timing 
or blindsided by an improbable event, or almost right, or wrong for the right reasons. Well, if you're a pundit, you're playing a complicated game. Uh, if I'm a pundit on your show or in anyone's show, I, I, need, I need to make it sound as though I know what I'm talking about. I need to make it sound as though I'm telling the listeners something they didn't know before. Mm-hmm. I also need to preserve my long-term credibility, which means I have to have some escape clauses. So if the claims I make about the future turn out to be wrong, I need, I need some way of, ba- of, of walking away from it. So when you have this problem of um, I, 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 you, you have a career as a pundit, you need to be saying something surprising, mm-hmm. but you also need to preserve your long-term credibility. That's a real dilemma the pundit is in. So the typical way pundits cope with this is by saying something dramatic uh, like uh, Canada will disintegrate or the Eurozone will disintegrate or Putin will reinvade the Ukraine, uh, but build in some waffle words like this could happen or this might happen or there's a distinct possibility this will happen. Now, distinct possibility is one of those wonderful phrases uh, because <laughs> if it happens, uh, I can say, hey, I told you there was a distinct possibility. If it doesn't happen, I can say, hey, I just said it was possible. So I'm covered either way. Uh, and that um, it helps to explain why pundits, um, and, and indeed uh, why traditionally people in the U.S. intelligence community as well, um, have relied so heavily on vague verbiage forecasting because they, they need to be saying something that sounds informative, but they need uh, a strategy for preserving their long-term credibility at the same time. So that explains why they don't admit error, although I would argue nobody bats a thousand. Admitting error shows that you have a little humility and recognize that it, it's not easy. In the last minute we have in this segment, the real question I have is, why don't we hold these folks accountable? Well, here's the thing, Barry. They don't even think that they're wrong. If I if I say there was a distinct possibility that Putin is going to invade Estonia uh, this this coming year, and he doesn't do it, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to interpret distinct possibilities having meant a very low probability. And if he does do it, I'm going to interpret distinct possibilities having meant a very high probability. I'm going. We we tend to be somewhat self-serving in our own mental calculus. We say, well, you know, we we interpret. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt on how we interpret distinct possibility. Just as we give the benefit of the doubt to you know political pundits who favor our political party. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Professor Philip Tetlock. He is the author of Expert Political Judgment, How Good Is It?, as well as Super Forecasters, a new book that just came out to great acclaim. He teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, Wharton. And, and let's jump right in to the hedgehogs versus foxes discussion. You referenced this throughout, really throughout um, the second book a lot. And if I recall correctly, you mentioned it a few times in in the first book, uh, which I read a while ago. Uh, For those people who may not have read uh, uh, Isaiah Berlin's essay, explain to us, what is the hedgehog and the fox? So Isaiah Berlin was uh, a British um, scholar, a political philosopher, a political historian, a philosopher, who um, took a quote from the uh, Greek warrior poet Archilochus from 2,500 years ago, and he built a really interesting essay around it. And the the quote, uh, one of the few surviving fragments of this man's work, uh, was that the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. And he intended that to capture different styles of thinking. He thought that um, some some thinkers were much closer to being um, 
uh, foxes. Uh, Shakespeare, I think, was one of his classic examples of a fox um, who could just have a very multifaceted view of human nature. And other writers, um, he thought, could be could be uh, pigeonholed better as hedgehogs. Now, we use this fox-hedgehog distinction um, in the work on political judgment because it it rather ca- captures rather well uh, different styles of thinking. Um, you could be, for example, a hedgehog of very of many different political sorts. You could be a free market hedgehog, or you could be a Marxist hedgehog. You could be an environmentalist uh, um, a doomster hedgehog, or you could be a a, a boomster. Um, a, a utopian kind of techno utopian mm-hmm. sort of hedgehog. They're going to find a cost-effective substitutes for whatever we're running out of. So there, there are many different forms of hedgehog: left, right, pessimistic, optimistic, and uh, we identified many of them in the early work, and we tracked their 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 accuracy, and we compared their accuracy to that of more fox-like forecasters, and we found a couple of things. One is that the hedgehogs tend to have pretty bad batting average. When you look at all their predictions, uh, they're they're over batting average is pretty bad. Uh, we also found that the hedgehogs tended to be more prominent. They're more attractive to the media. The media uh, like the kinds of sound bites that hedgehogs can deliver. And we found that the hedgehogs um, also uh, tended to have at least a few home runs. Yeah, Matt, if you're making a lot of pretty extreme predictions on a wide range of subjects, at least a few of them are by almost by chance going to be accurate. Uh, whereas the foxes are more making more moderate probability judgments and they have less claim uh, on home runs. So um, you get a somewhat ironic situation that the worst forecasters have the greatest media prominence. Isn't that inherent to the process of uh, not only having a real specific expertise in one area as opposed to being a generalist, but also making those outlier forecasts? I, I use a slide in my presentation about a particular pundit who every year for the past seven years has forecast a 1987-like crash. Every year. And you would think the media would eventually say, hey, this guy is just consistently wrong. But it's such an outrageous forecast and it gets people so excited, they love to bring him back on. Isn't that the nature of sensationalism, that the hedgehogs are going to be more, especially today where everything is on clicks and views Uh, who's going to generate more clicks a rational sober well we don't really know what's going to happen versus the sky is falling and and everybody loves that well i would just suggest that that people be better off if they were more honest about the functions that are served by consuming different types of information so you if you said to yourself look i want to be entertained I, I want I want to see somebody who's saying outrageous things, and I'm going to be, but but I'm not going to base my probability judgments on them. I just going to want to be entertained by these amazing stories this person is going to tell about how the Saudi regime is going to disintegrate and how right. we're on the verge of a World War Three. Uh, this is this is really entertaining stuff, as opposed to listening to this much more tentative, nuanced Fox-like forecaster who's saying on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, drones on and on about why the, there's really only about a 22% probability of the Saudi regime changing in the next 24 <laughs> months. Can we really view the world through uh, the lens of a, of a single defining idea? Or is that, as the disclaimer says, for entertainment purposes only? Well, we need to be very clear about the functions that are being served. Uh, some of these big ideas are very useful lenses for viewing the world um, at particular moments in history and in conjunction with other ideas. 
So I'm not saying that the intellectual apparatus is useless. I'm saying that what's really dangerous is when you have a smart person who runs too far with a big idea and fails to see that the complexity of the world puts a lot of brakes on it. So one of our rules of thumb for distinguishing better forecasters and worse forecasters on the media is the ratio of the number of times they say however versus moreover. So if you have a high however over moreover ratio, that means you're a fox. That means you're boring. That means you're probably going to be kicked off the show. And if you have- But more uh, <laughs> more accurate, more likely to be more accurate. But uh, that's right. You're going to have better Breyer score. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week, Professor Phil Tetlock of the University of Pennsylvania. His most recent book, Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction. So- Let's jump right into this because I have so many questions about this. And, and let me start out by just asking, how many piano tuners are there in Chicago? Uh, somewhere between about 80 and 100, I think. So, so <laughs> it's a fascinating question because your initial reaction is to shrug and say, I don't know. The, a variation I've heard of that is how many cardiac surgeons are there in London? Mm-hmm. Um, or what's the Empire State Building way? There's a, that's another good question. So, so let's talk. Um, let's talk a little bit about what do most people do when presented with a question like that. Interestingly, you know, some of the high tech firms in Silicon Valley were quite fond of asking off off the um, out of left field questions of this sort uh, because they thought it was a great way of testing how well people think on their feet. Um, in the book, we call these Fermi questions, named after the great Italian American physicist Enrico Fermi, who developed the first. Um, uh, nuclear reactor. It was a key part of the Manhattan Project, developing the bomb. And Fermi was fond of uh, posing these uh, oddball questions to his students. Uh, he, he, what he wanted to, the students to do he, was to take an, a seemingly intractable problem and break it down into parts or components that were more tractable. So you might not have any idea how many well, no one has any idea initially on how many how many piano tuners there might be in Chicago, uh, but you have, make guesstimates about the population of Chicago. So walk us through that, because well, right. you, you go through about seven steps and you get pretty close to the correct well, answer. Right. Well, you're making a lot of guesstimates, and it's not just the the breaking down and get trying to get the answer. The what you're doing in the process is you're revealing sources of ignorance, and your colleagues on your team, for example, if it's because our forecasters often work together on teams, uh, your colleagues can help you. Correct, help correct your errors. So what's the population of Chicago? Well, I don't really know. Is it between 2.5 and 4 million? I may be, you know, somewhere. I would guess about 3 million. Somewhere in the middle there. Uh, what proportion of the population would have a piano um, and, and so forth. You, you see, you, you would you'd break it down and you'd, you'd, you'd try to find eventually how, 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 how many people could conceivably make a living working as, as piano tuners uh, given uh, the number of people who own pianos in Chicago and their willingness to uh, pay for the services of piano tuners tuners. Um, and so, so Fermi did this. You know, he, he, I, uh, one legend is that he tried to uh, infer the strength of the first atomic blast um, by uh, dropping little pieces of paper when the wind, when the when the winds came in front, and, and by estimating how far the winds blew. And <laughs> I, I think he was off by a minute, or about forty or fifty percent. But you know that for Fermi estimates, that's not too bad. It's it's a lot better than simply shrugging your shoulders and saying I have no idea. I say, oh, it's about till, a ten kiloton blast as opposed to twenty, but. <laughs> That, that's fascinating. I, I'm ap- absolutely entranced by Fermi's paradox, which says, where, where is everybody? You know, it's a giant universe filled with different galaxies and hundreds of billions of stars. And are we really the only 
uh, intelligent life here. And, and I found most of the various arguments both ways to be lacking. It's really, it's really a fascinating, fascinating debate. But let, let's stick with this. So, so looking at what the Empire State Building weighs or, or how many piano tuners in Chicago, show us how to break down unknown questions into component parts and make reasonable assessments and reasonable valuations on each of those segments. Um, so so what did you find about teams of super forecasters? How much better are they at, at these sort of predictions than the average person or prediction markets or just regular pundits? Well, um, the, the, the teams of super forecasters truly astonished us because the the statisticians were telling us the right thing to do here was to have this each individual top performer make judgments completely independently of the others Mm -hmm. um rather than allowing them to contaminate each other and you get conformity and you get groupthink and you you get to get kind of a blur rather than a number of distinct points of view and then you can combine them statistically somehow so um we were the only uh competitor in the forecasting tournament sponsored by the u.s intelligence community that used teams um and, but we, we hedged our bets. We weren't sure that teams would work. We ran an experiment and we randomly assigned people to teams and we randomly and had other people work as individuals. Uh, and we were truly surprised that the teams functioned as well as they did. Um, and it's an interesting question of why our teams uh, were so dynamic and open-minded uh, relative to many teams you see in actual organizations. But before you answer that question, let, let's put a little flesh on the bone with some numbers. So teams of ordinary forecasters beat the wisdom of the crowd by about 10%. They were bested by prediction markets, um, and prediction markets beat ordinary teams by about 20%. And then the super teams of the best forecasters beat the prediction markets by anywhere from 15 to 30 percent. So these folks working in groups really are the outliers. None of the other groups are even close to them in terms of, of accuracy. Why do you think that is? Well, there, yeah, and I'll just add one other thing to that. They weren't just outperforming prediction markets in the, the public sphere. They were also outperforming intelligence analysts who were working, you know, behind a veil of of, of, of classified information, and it, it's just a remarkable thing. And I think U.S. intelligence community, which is much maligned for many things, deserves some credit for its willingness to sponsor a forecasting tournament that has the potential to be embarrassing for a government bureaucracy. How often do you see a government bureaucracy uh, spend money, a lot of money, on a project that has the potential to be to yield results that are fairly embarrassing? How hard is it to cultivate these skills? Or is it just a matter of uh, internalizing these ten bullet points? I wouldn't say just a matter. <laughs> it's it's non it's an it's a non-trivial thing to do. Uh, it's 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 pretty hard. Um, and uh, so let let's take get an example of one. And what do you think is an important um, an important commandment of super forecasting? Uh, you want to just pick of one at random? Um, sure. Okay. Um, well, one of them has to do with granularity, and uh, it's, it's, it's actually grounded in a story that about uh, President Obama and how he reacted to his advisors who were um, offering him um, 
somewhat conflicting probabilities on how likely it was that Osama bin Laden was residing in a particular compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. As, as, as we all know now, he, he was indeed residing there, and, and the president did authorize a Navy SEAL mission, and that resulted in, in Osama bin Laden's death. Um, now, when the president was confronted by these probability estimates from really smart people at the top of the intelligence apparatus, uh, ranging from about you know, 35 or 40% up to about 95%, um, the president's reaction was an interesting one. The, the, if, he, if, he, if he'd computed the average or the median estimate of the advice he was getting, he would have said, hmm, looks like about a 75% probability. Mm-hmm. But instead, he said something interesting. He said, well, look, look guys, uh, this is a coin flip. It's a 50-50 thing. Um, now, the president, I think, is a very intelligent person, and I think he's capable of being very granular in his ass- assessments of uncertainty. And if you doubt it, think about the following thought experiment, which is appropriate given that we're approaching March Madness. He follows March Madness he, uh, and uh, basketball. He's a basketball fan. Imagine he'd been sitting around with friends waiting for Duke to play some team in, in, um, in, March Mad- Mar- in the March Madness tournament. And uh, they offered him exactly the same probabilities about whether uh, Duke would win the win the game, you know, somewhere between thirty-five and ninety-five, with a center of gravity of opinion around seventy-five. Would he have said, "Hmm, sounds like a fifty-fifty thing," or would he have said, "Hmm, sounds like about um, three to one Duke"? Right. Um, I think to ask the question is to answer it. He, he, he would have seen opportunity for being much more granular in making bets about sports than he would in making estimates about the likelihood of a particular terrorist being in a particular location. Um, now, it, it turns out that um, for many categories of problems where we think it's impossible to be more granular, it is possible. And that's one of the things super forecasters have learned, that there's a difference between 50 and 75%. Sometimes they can even make distinctions between 50 and 60%. Now, we, we quote the, the chief risk officer of um, AQR, um, the hedge fund, um, Aaron Cliff Brown. Cliff Asness is the, the head of that right. hedge fund. Right, and, 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 and the, the chief risk officer is, is, is Aaron Brown. And when we talked with, with Aaron, uh, he, 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 you know, he, he's also a really serious poker player. Um, and he said, well, you can tell the difference between a world-class poker player and a talented amateur on the basis that the world-class player um, knows the difference between a 60-40 bet and a 40-60 bet. Mm-hmm. And then he paused it. Well, maybe it's more like 55-45, 45-55. Um, or indeed, 52-48, 48-52. How granular can you get in poker? Well, poker is a game with repeated play, quick, clear feedback. It's possible to get more granular on poker than it is about the location of terrorists or about whether countries are going to leave the Eurozone. But it's an open question of how granular you can get. Um, and you need to grapple with this thing, the distinction between precision and pseudo-precision. Um, and that's one of the things super forecasters are just very thoughtful people who push the frontiers of knowledge as far as they can. And that means sometimes pushing them a little too far, in which case they mm-hmm. retreat. If people want to find your work, just Google Philip Tetlock and they'll be able to dig up all of your various publications, books, writings, etc. Yeah, Google Scholar is probably a little faster, but yeah, sure. All right. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and check out all 83 or so of our prior conversations. Be sure and follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, This is Barry Ritholtz. Professor Tetlock, if I don't Remember to say this later. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This has really um, been a fascinating conversation. I, I have a lot of things 
to go over with you in the last 20 minutes or so we have. But there are a few questions that I'm just dying to ask you because it's your previous book really was very influential to me on expert political judgment. It was that book and it was a prior book called The Fortune Sellers that really was more of a media criticism of this parade of people who would come through the studios, make their outlandish forecast, be completely wrong, never be held accountable, and then they would get called back. And the more outlandish, uh, the better there were. There, there was an author who wrote a book. I'm trying to remember what year the book was. It was called The the Tao Jones, T-A-O, uh, Bennett Goodspeed. And he called these folks the articulate incompetents, plural, <laughs> meaning that they're very good salespeople. They can speak, but really they have no expert knowledge and if you've spent any time in green rooms in various television studios there's something to that so let me ask the the basic question that we kind of skirted around during the broadcast portion why are we so enamored with forecasting and forecasters despite their terrible track records well i think because there's a lot of motivated reasoning going on, as as we noted earlier, there's this tendency to use a lot of vague, do a lot of vague verbiage forecasting to to paint a dramatic scenario and then hold it together with some very weak verbs like this might happen or could happen or the distinct possibility of this happening. Um, so there's this interesting tendency uh, that the pundits have of engaging our attention with a vivid scenario, disintegration of the Saudi regime or you know, uh, Sino-Japanese wars or something Tom Clancy-ish uh, right. on that kind of scale, um, and, 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 but to stitch it all together with terms, weasel, weasel word terms that allow them to retreat later on. And... Um, we, we don't distinguish very clearly in our own minds. We, 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 I don't think we want to hold, say all of the fault lies with the pundits. They couldn't do this unless, unless we were willing partners. Um, and I think that, you know, here, here I am talking at a radio station, one of the most influential companies in the world, Bloomberg. Um, Bloomberg is a major purchaser of expertise. Um, Bloomberg could actually change the world to some degree if it implemented systematic, uh, uh, if it implemented systems for tracking the accuracy of many of the people who came through. Mm-hmm. If part of the price for getting onto Bloomberg was that you had to demonstrate that you were engaging in some kind of rigorous scorekeeping, and Bloomberg could flash up some some batting average statistics right. um, as, as you as you appear, um, you, you, Bloomberg could increase the collective IQ of our society. It could increase the collective IQ of the conversation. Um, Wouldn't so, most pundits stay away when they run? Well, hide the, here, they... <laughs> well, that's the question. I mean, I, I say Bloomberg because Bloomberg is so influential. I think a lot of a lot of pundits would say, "Well, I'm not I'm not going to run away and hide from Bloomberg." Uh, but the other media could do this too: the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. There are lots of major media sites that have the leverage uh, that could induce pundits to be much more intellectually honest. They choose not to exercise that option. Um, uh, probably because they pr- don't perceive a great market demand for it. We, we were talking during the break um, about my uh, usage of a little app called followupthen.com. Whenever I see an outrageous forecast, I just shoot an email to a specific date. So gold going to $5,000, and I, I send the forecast uh, 
I send the email out to, oh, well, uh, let, let's, let's give them a year. So we'll send a forecast out, uh, an email out, March1 at followupthen.com with the, the headline and the, the web address of the article that made this forecast. And then a year later, or if I write March 1, 2020, five years later, comes the email back that specifically gives me that link. Oh, it's a reminder. Here's what this person said a year ago. And occasionally I get to do an article about, hey, here's a wild forecast that someone made and it's been completely wrong. So let's talk about your book. You kind of call me out for calling someone else out. And I'm curious as, as to your perspective on this. So in 2010, when the Fed was in the midst of doing quantitative easing, uh, there was a letter published in, I believe, uh, online, and it ran in the Wall Street Journal and a number of places, warning that quantitative easing was going to cause hyperinflation and collapse of the dollar and all these terrible things. And so I figured you got to give those people three years. So I set a reminder for three years later, and three years later it popped up. Hey, the dollar is at multi-year highs. There, there is no hyperinflation. There's, there's deflation. These guys were wrong, and so I called them out about it, and it went totally viral. It got picked up by a dozen different media outlets, and a book called Super Forecasting. Now, at by today we're six years forward, um, and we still have a strong dollar and and no inflation. What is the the issue with? An ambiguous forecast with no specific. Uh, I describe forecasts as an asset class, a price, and a specific date. If you leave out the specific date, uh, do you get to say we're never wrong because there's just wait, you'll see? Is is that a fair defense of that? It's definitely not fair, but it is, it, it, <laughs> it is the state of the art at the moment. You know, there's an old communism joke that, that that's rather apropos here. Um, you know, the, the the Soviet revolutionary Leon Trotsky, uh, after he was thrown out of the Soviet Union by Stalin, you know, went went around giving talks to to left wing audiences around the world. And um, one probably apocryphal story has it that he went, once when he was introduced uh, to an audience of followers, uh, the the speaker said uh, was was proclaiming uh, Leon Trotsky a vision who could see far, far into the future. And he was saying, and you know, comrades, the ultimate proof of the farsightedness of, 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 of Comrade Trotsky, not one of his predictions has yet come true. <laughs> That's how farsighted he is. The, the old joke about market forecasting is you could give a price level or a date, but never mm -hmm. both at once. And that's just another way. So, so how long do we allow a forecast to persist before we say, all right, at this point, it's been X number of years. You, we're going to have to put you in the incorrect column. Well, there's there's no absolute rule. Uh, be, that's just the way vague verbiage is. Vague verbiage is vague because it it, it it's just a, it, it, it's it's always a a, a, a slippery vague um, thing that you, no nobody knows how to quantify it and and keeps keeps the pundit safe. Um, I mean, I have lots of forecasters from the earlier work who predicted that Canada would disintegrate or Nigeria would disintegrate. Or there are a lot of disintegration scenarios out there that haven't happened yet. Um, and if and, you call them on it, are they going to say, "Well, we're it's it's only 2016; it could still happen." Absolutely, and absolutely. and wholeheartedly believe it. That's right. That's so, right. so how much of this is just simply humans not being immune to human behavior? You're a psychologist. Let, let's let's take that tact. 
Is this just ordinary human behavior, refusal to accept responsibility for error, not wanting to admit being wrong, not wanting to do anything that reduces their potential um, status within the hierarchy? Is that all this is? Well, we're, we're moving into a world that's requiring us to make ever subtler distinctions among degrees of uncertainty, the sorts of distinctions we didn't have to make in a revolutionary past. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were wandering the savanna plains of Africa, you know, there were either, either is a lion or isn't a lion stirring in the long grass, and uh, you're, you're going to have to make a judgment call pretty darn quickly, and if you dawdle very long, it may be, you're not likely to pass your genes on to the next generation. You're better off being wrong but jumping the gun. <laughs> than having a higher, um, better track record. But if you're wrong once, well, then it's catastrophic uh, in terms of progeny. And that makes a lot of sense. That sort of thinking is why we have a tendency to do all sorts of things that just are inappropriate in investing, but worked really well way back when. That's right. And um, uh, if you can imagine a scenario, here's the, here's the big problem with tail risks and scenarios. Um, most of the time people underrate them, mm-hmm. but as soon as a scenario is called to their attention, they overrate it. <laughs> well, it's, it's very, very difficult for people to strike the right balance in dealing with tail risk scenarios. So, so that whole recency effect thing is since nobody, very few people were forecasting the sort of financial crisis we had in 08, 09. And since then it's been nothing but catastrophic forecasts. From the the recession never ended. We're going to turn into a depression. Here comes another eighty seven like stock crash. The the parade of horribles just have not st- now auto loans are the new subprime. It's going to be just like uh, is is this just that that tail risk factor is so recent in people's minds and they missed it coming and so now they're just like every general fights the last war. These folks are still fighting the previous. Financial crisis. Right. And the diplomats try to avoid the last war. Um, yes. no, I, I think that's right. I mean, you uh, you, uh, you 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 go from Iraq to Syria and Libya, or you you, you go from one era to another. And, and Iraq was far enough after Vietnam that it looked like all it takes is a generation before those lessons are lost. More or less, yeah. More, more or less. All right. So I only have you for another ten minutes, and um, my last question before I jump to my my standard questions. Burton Malkiel said, when investors move from stock to stock or mutual fund to fund, as if they were selecting and discarding cards in a a game of gin rummy, what does this tell us about humans' ability to participate in uncertain equity markets? Well, this is another one of these, uh, the Ten Commandments that we formulated from observing the super forecasters. They're acutely aware of the principle of error balancing. Mm-hmm. If you look at the research literature on human judgment, there are two kinds of errors people can make in the situation you're describing. One of them is the error of excessive volatility, mm-hmm. of um, a, a jumping every time there's a little bit of news and exaggerating its diagnostic value vis-a-vis deep market trends. And the other big mistake you can make is uh, excessive rigidity and being so committed to a particular preconception about where the future is going that you just ignore the news altogether and you don't, you, you, fail, you, you, fail, you fail to do any updating. So it, it's this kind of principle of error balancing. It's a bit like riding, learning how to ride a bicycle. Um, I mean, I, I could talk 
for hours about the principles of error balancing. And everybody would say, yeah, yeah, I kind of get it. Sure, you can make one error, you can make the other error. The, but the only way it's really going to sink into people's heads if they, is if they go to forecasting tournaments and they actually practice making judgments. Get on the bike and try to ride it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what uh, going to a forecasting tournament's all about. And that, that's why we, we're continuing to run the gjopen.com, which is a forecasting tournament where people can indeed uh, work to cultivate their skills. That, that sounds pretty uh, pretty fascinating. So that that's really interesting for that. Uh, actually, we have a little more time, so I'm going to keep uh, banging away on some of these questions. Uh, in, in the first book on in the previous book on expert political judgment, uh, you know, I, I look at these as really two sides to the same coin. The first book talks about. Uh, what is essentially long-term forecasts, really a year and further out. And they tend to be wrong. The book on super forecasting is really looking at a year or less. So are, are, are they really saying two different things, or are we really looking at two different types of uh, forecasts, two different lengths? I, I think that's a superb point. Uh, there are different uh, time periods in the different studies. Um, I'm much more optimistic that we can improve forecasting using the right selection, training, teaming tools mm-hmm. in shorter time periods, up to about a year. Uh, I become progressively more pessimistic when you go out to the longer reaches of three, five, ten years that were included in expert political judgment. And, and uh, there, I think, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult to, to do, much better, um, do much better than chance. How many times do you have to shuffle a deck of cards um, until uh, it's perfectly random? Um, that's a good question. Well, uh, I think the... Um, I would the, guess the, five, the, the but stat, that's the, a wild the, guess. The statistician and magician Percy Diaconis, uh, Stanford, I think he estimated at seven. Okay. Um, well, life is like shuffling the cards. I mean, how, how many months, how many years have to go by before so many random contingencies accumulate that the, no, no human being could conceivably have anticipated anything that far out? And... Um, our, our current best guess uh, for the kinds of geopolitical, geoeconomic questions we're looking at is, is around a year or so. Um, Isn't that just the nature of uh, society and, and a complex system such as fill in the blanks, stock markets, economy, geopolitics, elections, anything along those lines? Uh, they're so sensitive to initial conditions. They're nonlinear. The, you end up with a little change here has out sized impact further down the road really what we're saying is the universe is pretty random beyond 12 months uh it, it's practically impossible to make any sort of realistic forecast with any degree of specificity um about certain things i made a bet four years ago with um i won't mention his name but he's been a guest on the show as to i was wondering who was the gop nominee likely to be this is literally three years ago after after the 2012 election. And um, he said, well, what about the Democrats? And I said, well, that's easy. That'll be Hillary. But who? I have no idea who the Republicans are going to be. So we made a bet. And so far, looking pretty good. Um, but I don't know if I got lucky, just got lucky and assumed it was she was up next. She was next in line. Uh, but under normal circumstances, when you're looking out two, three, four years, uh, there are so many contingencies. Can anybody really? I got lucky. I'm not pretending I have any expertise in politics or anything else. But can anybody consistently have any sort of acumen 
thinking out more than 12 months? It's it's really hard. I mean, there there are some categories of questions where uh, uh, longer foresight is possible. I think the Hillary thing was in the cards for for, for, for quite a long time. Right. Um, but uh, for most of these things, I mean, who? I mean, to take some extreme examples, I mean, in, in 1940, Dwight Eisenhower was an anonymous army colonel. Mm -hmm. In 1952, he was president of the United States in 12 years, right? Uh, in um, uh, Jimmy Carter was an anonymous peanut farmer in, uh, in right. 1964 and 1976. He was 12 being, years. Uh, being elected president of the United States. So right. 12 years is a, is a huge amount of time in, 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 in politics. So I don't think anybody really is going to suppose there's very much possibility there. Um, but as, as you get closer and closer, it gets more and more possible. That's not all that surprising. It's an analogy would be like to Snell and Ichar when you visit your optometrist. And it gets, it gets easier and easier the closer up you get for most things. Um, the trouble is we're just not very well tuned to the parameters. Um, and if somebody can tell a really good story about a relatively far off future, about you know the United States is moving toward a, a techno utopia in which GDP will, will will skyrocket as intelligent machines do amazing things for us in the fourth industrial revolution, uh, that that may that scenario may indeed materialize by in in, in twenty thirty or twenty forty. Um, but the the likelihood of scenarios of that sort uh, being accurate um, is is extremely low. I have a T-shirt at home, and it says, "Where is my jetpack? I was promised a jetpack by the year 2000." When you go, all back, I got was 144 characters. Right? <laughs> right, that's right. When when you look back at future forecasts from decades ago, and we now have enough of them that we can look back 50, 75, 100 years as to what people were expecting from the future. What's fascinating is all the amazing technolo technological developments, all the advantages of hardware, software, biotechnology, medicine that we practically take for granted, they weren't the things that people were forecasting. It was colonizing Mars and other sort of hoverboards and other such things. Uh, so even when you're thinking in terms of giant technological changes, and of course there's a handful of people, you know, Arthur C. Clarke is notorious for having forecast everything from cell phones mm -hmm. to satellites to, to what have you. Um, what does this say about our ability to understand the, fu the present and extrapolate to the future? What it suggests is we'd be better off if we were aware of our limitations uh, achieved a certain baseline of appropriate humility and got in the habit of keeping score and resisted being uh, sucked into uh, clever scenarios and storytellers and resisted being uh, seduced by credentials. If, if we could manage to do those things, I think uh, we would um, proceed through life making investments and political decisions with better calibrated probabilities. And I think we would be better off as individuals and we'd be better off as a society. That that sounds uh that sounds tremendous. On a related note to that, because because those those seven bullet points are, are very significant. Let let's talk about uncertainty, which you is a is a uh, concept that is dotted throughout actually both books. Um, what is uncertainty, and and what does it mean for individuals just trying to navigate their way through the world? Do do we understand uncertainty? Uh, do we misunderstand it? What what exactly is it relative to thinking about the future? Well, um, 
there are some types of problems where um, the probabilities can be readily computed. Mm -hmm. uh, we can compute the probability of drawing an ace of spades from a randomly shuffled deck um, very accurately uh, to many decimal points if we want, whatever one out of over 52 works out to. Uh, we can do that with coin toss games and, and so forth. Nice. Um, so there are some games in which uh, the classic rules of Statistics 101 very clearly apply, and there are well-defined probabilities. In other uh, words, we know what the range of outcomes are. We just don't know what the specific outcome is going to be. Got a well-defined sampling universe. You've got cl quick, clear feedback about your, about your predictions. Um, much of the world, most of the world isn't like that. Is um, not like that. It's definitely not like that. And, and, and the question is, what are the limits? What, how useful is it to apply probabilistic forms of reasoning um, outside their traditional domains of application? That, in a sense, is what the U.S. intelligence community really wanted to explore. I mean, can we do better than, say, distinct possibility? Which, when you look at it carefully, is such an elastic term, it could mean anything from 1% to 99%. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the intelligence community and the Defense Department. Um, how did you get involved with DARPA and the the competition, the forecasting competition? Right. Well, um, it was IARPA as opposed IARPA. to DARPA, okay. the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Agency, as opposed to DARPA. Uh, but it's 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 a cousin, and mm -hmm. it, and it and it models itself to some degree, I think, after DARPA. It it, it really wants to do radical. Earth change, world changing forms of research, mm -hmm. uh, and I think changing how we think about uncertainty would would be would be pretty fundamental. Maybe not as fundamental as in, inventing the internet, but way up there. Right. Um, it would be a big deal um, to, to 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 change how we uh, how we go about doing things. It would, I think our, our democracy would would be transformed. I think the finance industry would be transformed. Uh, it would it would not it would not be. <laughs> not a small thing. This these, is these a huge would, thing. These would not be small things. That, that, How long right. have they been running this contest? So they started, they, they approached my wife and me when we were still on the faculty at University of California, Berkeley, about uh, six years ago. And we had a nice um, um, set of drinks over at the Claremont Hotel in, in, in Berkeley. And um, we um, we were just astonished that the U.S. intelligence community was prepared to run a series of forecasting tournaments. I mean, I predicted that they would never want to do anything like that. So it's kind of <laughs> ironic, right, that I'd, I forecast that forecasting tournaments would be impossible. And I, and I was being a bit of a hedgehog. What I, what I said is, look, government bureaucracies don't uh, give uh, slingshot money to David, right? Goliath doesn't give sling, slingshot money to David. Uh, why would a, a massive influential government bureaucracy, $50 billion or so, uh, want to spread millions of dollars around to a bunch of small-scale academic competition to see whether or not they can do a better job of assigning realistic probabilities to things of national security significance? And, 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 and put and this within the did, context. It didn't make any sense given the normal rules of bureaucratic behavior in Washington, D.C. Um, and so I, I, I was too hedgehoggy. <laughs> I was wrong about that. Now, when they I'm delighted I was wrong. Uh, to say the least, when, when they came to you, the prior book, the Expert Political Judgment book, you had really run a form of this. You had as assembled, amassed, over 82,000 separate forecasts from several thousand, was it, or several hundred political forecasters? It was, it was, a, it was a smaller number. It was in the hundreds. But um, the... Um, Yes, in a sense, expert political judgment was a small-scale dry run for mm -hmm. what IARPA did. Expert political judgment was run more on a shoestring budget, right. uh, whereas uh, the IARPA forecasting tournaments were run on a, on a much more in a much more professional, large-scale basis with 
And, you know, and one of the nice things about the IARPA project, you know, people worry about the replicability of research and things like this, but this was all independently monitored by the U.S. intelligence community. I mean, right. these, these, these forecasts were submitted at 9 a.m. Eastern time every day on the day, every, every day the forecast tournaments were running over four years. Um, so there is a very clear paper trail. So what what is the state of the forecasting contest these days? Is it something that they've put aside? What What is the takeaway from all that? The takeaways are that it is possible to make better probability estimates of events that many people thought it would be impossible to estimate probabilistically. Mm -hmm. And it's possible to do that by engaging in systematic talent spotting, which mm -hmm. you can only do if you're tracking score. And it's also possible to do by designing good training modules, um, by putting together teams that are open to dissent and uh, know how to do precision questioning of each other's assumptions, and also by doing a little bit of algorithmic magic. Um, so do you think the result of that contest has changed the way the U.S. intelligence community recruits talent, trains talent, and makes forecasts about future events? Well, you'd have to ask the U.S. intelligence community about how exactly things have changed. My understanding is that uh, the National Intelligence Council now does uh, try to quantify its probability estimates rather than using just vague verbiage forecasting. Um, it has probability ranges. I think it, it tries to distinguish at least seven degrees of uncertainty, which mm -hmm. is a lot more than three. Uh, it's more than five, which was which was the preceding number. I think they may be underestimating themselves. I think they could probably get up to ten or fifteen if they if they wanted to. Uh, um, but I think they're moving in the right direction. I think there's growing interest in crowdsourcing forecasts. There's growing recognition that. Um, the average forecast derived from a group of forecasters is uh, often more accurate than most of the individuals from whom the average was derived. It sounds kind of magical, but it, 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 is, makes it, sense. it is true. Um, not always true, but it's a good way to bet. Mm -hmm. we, we've, I've been critical of some of the prediction markets, not because the theory underlying them is wrong, but very often they're narrow, they're not diverse, they're not incentivized. All the various things you need for a, a prediction market to work is often missing. Um, and, and sometimes the betters, the participants are, are so similar to each other, it's hard to extrapolate that out to other other factors. Um, uh, these, these sort of contests and the various prediction markets, uh, can we describe these as money ball for the intelligence community? Is it just quantifying data in a way that hasn't been done previously to intelligence forecasts? I think that's a great way to describe it. It's Moneyball for the intelligence community. When's the movie coming The old world was a world with uh, baseball scouts. Uh, uh, Clint Eastwood, crusty baseball scouts, who <laughs> you know, were, were gradually being displaced by these number crunchers. Um, we're never going to do away with people who have deep qualitative insights into the subject matter. They're a crucial source of input. Mm -hmm. uh, but the question is, what roles should we be playing as the world changes. And it, I think human judgment will always be playing a critical role when we're dealing with human beings. Um, uh, but there are useful tools for combining uh, human judgment, uh, and you can get more out of it than previously supposed. That makes a lot of sense. But before we get to our, our favorite standard questions, anything from super forecasting I might have missed that you want to uh, add as as worth thinking about before we uh, we get into a little bit of your history? Well, the thing that I most hope, if I mean, I'm, I'm getting older now. I mean, I've been doing this stuff for 30 plus years. Um, and the thing that I most hope 
the lasting legacy of this work, and I hope it improves uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy and, and intelligence analysis, but I also hope it improves our democracy. And I think in the, in the closing chapter, we talk about the, the debate between Paul Krugman and Niall Ferguson on, mm-hmm. on various issues and how it more resembles a food fight than it does uh, a <laughs> yes. serious debate between extremely intelligent people, which, which both of them obviously are. Um, and the question is, could we use forecasting tournaments? Could we structure them in ways uh, to facilitate more civilized debates on issues that matter? So that's why I wrote a piece in the New York Times several months ago with Peter Skoblik on how we could do that with the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, and what, you know, one way to proceed would be to say, okay, you've got hawks, you've got doves, you have different opinions about what the long-term consequences of signing this deal are. Uh, we don't know for sure which historical trajectory we're on. Why don't the hawks generate five questions that they think they have a comparative advantage in answering? Why don't the doves generate five questions that they think they have a comparative advantage in answering? And you know what? Victory will have a clear-cut meaning here. If the, if the doves can answer the dove questions better than the hawks, and they can answer the hawk questions better, then the doves win, and vice versa for the hawks. Uh, now, um, Anyone take you up on that? Uh, well, we do have a number of people who are participating in the tournament, and um, one of the people uh, in gjopen.com has written a memo on, on uh, where, where we are right now. The moderates seem to be doing the best at the moment, but you know that game is far from over. I mean, this is just the very early stages of uh, a long-term process. Yeah, we're in year one of a what a ten-year treaty. It's uh, yeah. quite a ways to go. So, so when you when you describe that and you mentioned debates, I immediately thought of the political debates this year, which, uh, at least on the GOP side, have been not your usual policy debates. Um, and I'd love to see some of the tenants from super forecasting find its way to uh, the political parties and and see if we can have. A little more substantive discussion about when this happens, here's what happens in the future, and then hold these folks accountable. That really doesn't seem to happen, on whether with political experts or politicians. We really don't hold their feet to the fire much, do we? How far into the future might it be when, in a presidential election, the presidential candidates take pride in what their Breyer scores are? Um, I think it's a long way off, judging by uh, what's going on this year. To, to say the least. So so let's talk about, um, let's talk a little bit about you personally, rather than than some of the books and the ideas that you've you've put forth, which which have been absolutely fascinating. Um, so, how did you find your way? You went you you became a you went to Yale. You got your PhD in psychology. How did you find your way into forecasting? This really seems far afield from the traditional um, academic. Uh, realm of that i was always a pretty strange psychologist uh okay. I, I i had interest that, that took me pretty deep into social science into political science in particular into into areas of business um, but i was interested in organizations i was interested in societies and cultures and and, and large entities that were not you know that obviously psychology matters there but it, it's it's a stretch for a psychologist so in my early work i did do uh, a fair amount of experimental um work but I was also also did a lot of archival and naturalistic work, so it was a kind of a natural progression for me. Um, Who are your early mentors? Uh, well, um, 
Peter Sudfeld was my very first mentor in Canada. I was an undergraduate, University of British Columbia, and, and he, he was wonderfully supportive and, of me, and, and he believed in me, and he, he really told me uh, that, you know, I, that I would probably have a pretty good time if I uh, went to graduate school at Yale. And I, I t- took it on faith, and I, I did that, and I, I met a number of people at Yale who helped me. Um, the guy who coined the term groupthink, Irving Janis, mm-hmm. uh, was one of the people I worked with, and he was a quite an unusual psychologist also. Um, when I got to Berkeley, of course, um, Daniel Kahneman came along in a few years, sure. and uh, he, he certainly had an influence on me. I already had a PhD, and I was, I was just recently tenured faculty, but... Um, Kahneman is a is a lot is a, is a very influential guy. <laughs> very, just, he's, say, he's just a lot smarter than than, than most of us. So <laughs> it's a it's a good idea to listen very carefully when he speaks. I, I really enjoyed um, thinking fast and thinking slow. The the metaphor for that entire two stage uh, way to look at how humans make decisions, either fast and instinctual or longer and thoughtful really just seems to make a lot of sense. Um, what other books uh, have you really enjoyed? What other books have been especially uh, influential to you? Well, another person who influenced me is just um, uptown here at Columbia University, uh, Robert Jervis, his book Perception, Misperception, International Politics. It came out when I was in graduate school, and I, I could feel myself being tugged toward these topics. It was It's a brilliant analysis of... Um, Mistakes that have caused um, unnecessary wars. Give, give me that title things. again. Perception? Perception and misperception in international politics by Jervis. Jervis. Huh. Anything else uh, stands out as as interesting or unusual to you? Well, um, I mean, life evolves in funny, quirky, path dependent ways. I mean, you can you can look back on your life and you can say, well, it's kind of inevitable this happened or that happened. But a lot of the things that that led to my early forecasting tournament work were, I think, kind of quirky. I mean, it was really kind of quirky that a, a scholar as young as I was was appointed to a National Research Council committee at, when I was I guess, 30 or 31 years, 1984. Uh, when, I, when I was that young, um, by far the most junior member of one, a committee like that, and it had a lot of senior scientists on it, uh, but it gave me opportunities to meet a lot of people and it connected me to resources that made it possible to do the early forecasting tournament work. Mm-hmm. It also impressed on me the need to do it. Uh, because there, there we were in 1984-85, liberals and conservatives all had very strong opinions about the Soviet Union and where things were going. And the liberals thought that you know, Reagan was sending us toward a nuclear apocalypse. And the conservatives thought that, then, you know, that the Soviet Union was um, uh, the evil empire. It's an evil empire and would never change from within, essentially. You just had to keep up endless pressure and maybe it would eventually crack. But you know, they, they, they didn't hold out any – and they certainly didn't see Gorbachev as much of a change agent initially. Um, each side – neither side really predicted Gorbachev and what Gorbachev did inside the Soviet Union uh, in the internal transformations that occurred. Both sides could readily explain after the fact, what happened. Um, so it was this mismatch between virtually zero predictive ability and virtually perfect ex post explanatory ability that uh, troubled me. And I thought, well, you know, if, if debates this important, like World War III, <laughs> are, 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 are being conducted this shoddily, you know, surely there's a better way to do this. Um, and that's what led to the early work on expert political judgment. It was a way to try to, what, what can we do to, to, to keep score? And, and if we do keep score, can we identify... Um, um, uh, better ways of making judgments. You describe something that is an enormous pet peeve of mine in the markets. Nobody knows what happens day to day. There is zero predictive analysis. 
And then on an, any given day, the market's up 500 points, it's down 500 points. And ex post, there is always a fantastic narrative explaining exactly here's why oil shot up 20% and why the market rallied 300 points, or here's why this terrible thing happened and the market dropped 500 points. But nobody is saying if this happens tomorrow, then here's the result. It's always an after-the-fact narrative. That that seems to be consistent across lots of different uh, fields, not just politics, but markets and economics. And after the fact, we're fantastic storytellers. Before the fact, we have no idea. Yeah, And there are, there are situations where we really want to continue doing that, though. It's not always bad. I mean, the National Transportation Safety Board, for example, conducts these ex-post postmortems on plane plane crashes. One of the reasons why air travel has become as safe as it is is because they're so good at doing these postmortems. Now, obviously, they can't predict which planes are going to go down, but they've become really pretty adept at uh, identifying the critical factors that underlie plane accidents. And as a result, the rules for pilots and the, um, the design features of aircraft have changed in ways that make us all safer. safer. So, um, But I, they're I, not just making up a story for the <laughs> 6 o'clock news. They're saying, hey, the, you know, the whole shuttle investigation, well, the O-ring that, failed. That's right. Therefore, that's the most, most youth worlds, most sectors don't have a black box that say, hey, here's why the engine failed at 207 and 15 seconds. That, that's right. So there are different types of postmortems, and some of them are constrained by well-defined bodies of scientific knowledge and investigative mm -hmm. procedure uh, that reduce the serious risk of capitalizing on chance, mm -hmm. and others are just sort of make it up as you go. Right. And I think the things we're talking about are make it up as you go, but there are approaches to doing case studies and learning from the past that are very disciplined and focused and can make us safer and wealthier and happier. The the recent book, um, The Checklist, talks about how much better surgical procedures and outcomes have been since surgeons started using checklists, including wash your hands, which very often was just assumed um, mm -hmm. that it was done properly with a certain disinfectant in a certain length of time. But we've we've apparently dramatically reduced uh, operating instruments left in abdomens and keeping count of the number of sponges, and that's improved the the subsequent outcome, just as the National Transportation Safety Board ha has improved the safety level of, uh, of travel. That's right. So the big question for us is when is learning possible? When can we learn to do certain categories of things better? And when are we just spinning our wheels and deluding ourselves? Mm -hmm. Are we spinning our wheels and deluding ourselves about financial markets and many political issues, but we're actually making real progress in the domains of medicine or airline safety or or whatnot? And, and the, it's, a, it's a mixed picture. Um, and I suppose what we're trying to do with this forecasting tournament work is to bring some of the rigor that has worked in these more scientific domains to bring it to bear in, in, in domains that are, that are more or less like the Wild West. Huh. Um, so let's. you've been doing this now for, you said, 30 years. What's changed in this industry more than anything? What is the significant progress in, in the forecasting and prediction industry um, during the course of your career? That's a hard question. Um, they're not all softballs. They're, 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 that's right. Well, they're, they're, I, I think that uh, our knowledge of the imperfections in human judgment, uh -huh. thanks to a lot of the Kahneman-inspired research programs, I, I think we've made discernible progress there. 
to say the least. I, 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 I think we've. Um, I think some of the statistical tools have improved in various ways. I think some of the tools for running teams mm-hmm. have even improved. I mean, I think we can do. There are versions of the Delphi procedure, for example, which was developed a long time ago, but it's got has gotten the Delphi procedure has gotten better. Right. So, which I, is what? Well, remember, I was saying that a lot of people thought it was kind of crazy to use teams. You're better uh-huh. off having a lot of independent observers. But there's a way to get the benefits of independence and the benefits of creative interaction at the same time. Mm-hmm. And one way to do that is by going, getting everybody to make their judgments anonymously. So you give your probability judgment, your explanation. I give mine, and everybody around the table gives theirs, and we circulate. And we we circulate that, and nobody knows who said what. So the high status guy oh, isn't, really? isn't isn't swaying everything the way often often happens in groups. Um, and everybody's expressing their judgments anonymously. So don't so they're insulated from the groupthink pressure. And you can do that two or three times. And then the question is, how much better is the resulting group judgment after you go through this process uh, than it would have been if you'd simply, say, taken um, an unweighted average of each of the individual group, group, group judgments? And the answer is it's better. Uh, how much better? Uh, I think meta-analyses suggest probably in the vicinity of 10% better. 10% is, you know, that's a world-changing, that's a real, real (laughs) significant, if you're talking about avoiding a war or finding a terrorist or anything along those lines, that's a real worthwhile pursuit. It's nothing to sniff at. Nothing to sniff at. So now let me ask you for your forecast, what are the next major changes, what are the next shifts that are going to come in in the world of forecasts and predictions. What do you see? Perhaps the better way to say this, uh, to ask this, is what do you see as the influence of your work on on the forecasting community? I see huge potential here. Um, uh, the uh, IARPA, which funded the first forecasting tournament, is going to be funding two follow-up forecasting tournaments. Um, and I think many of your readers might be interested in these, and there, there will be a, a calls for volunteers to participate in one form or another. One of them is focusing not so much on the accuracy of your forecast as on the probative value of the explanations you generate. The probative value are you good before at expo- or after uh, the fact? Are you good at explaining things? Um, and, and again, the, the extent to which we can uh, crowdsource aspects of problem solving uh, and then eventually marrying that, I think, to forecasting. Hmm. Um, I, I think that's a very ambitious project. It's, it's, it's in the very early stages. It hasn't been launched yet, um, and, but I'm optimistic that it will. Um, uh, so what this is called the IARPA Forecasting. It's called, it's called Create. Create. C R E A T E. And what does that stand for? Uh, it it it's, it's, it stands for uh, the complex uh, reasoning. Explaining yeah, and it, it, that's blah, right. Blah, it's, blah, it's an acronym like that. Yeah. That's right. All right. <laughs> oh, that sounds interesting. I'll definitely I'll uh, I'll search for that and I'll link to that. And the the other is another competition which is called HFC, the Hybrid Forecasting Competition, which will be. Um, uh, humans and machines and human-machine combinations uh, trying to make uh, predictions, uh, which I, I am quite optimistic about. Um, so it's I, Watson working with somebody. Well, it would be that would be one way of doing it. There are a lot of there are a lot of possible machines or a lot of possible models that people could work with. And, and mm-hmm. the question is, are you better off just using the model, or are you better off just using the person, or are you better off when are you better off using the combination of the model and the person? And uh, huh. the, the the blunt truth is, we really don't know the answers to these questions right now, and we're hoping to to learn more. So I think that's these are these are really important projects. And I think the other big thing that that I'm very focused on because it has relevance to improving the debate in our debates in our society is competitions to generate better questions. 
it's not to just generate better questions. That's yeah, fascinating. It's not just about forecasting. It's I mean you you can you can forecast trivial pursuits and you can become a great forecaster in trivial pursuits and really the world's not a better place for it. <laughs> right. What what uh, what your world would be a better place when we join super forecasting skills to questions uh, on which big policy debates pivot. So you say if we knew the answer to this question, would we have invaded Iraq? Or if we had known the answer, if we had known the answer to that, if we if we knew the answer to this question, what would would, would it change how we what we do in Syria or the Ukraine or with respect to tax policy or with respect to uh, Fed policy or whatnot? Uh, so uh, generating probative questions, uh, generating high quality explanations, uh, human machine competitions. I think these are three really important areas for the future. That, that's fascinating. So last two questions. Um, this is always interesting, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to to phrase it for you. Normally, I say, what advice would you give to a millennial or someone just graduating college who are going into your field? But I don't know whether that's the field of psychology or the field of analyzing uh, and improving forecasts and predictions. But let me ask it in an open-ended fashion. What advice would you Give to someone just coming out of school, starting their career, who wants to follow in your footsteps. Well, it's an interesting point that I really don't have a field <laughs> anymore. I mean, so the University of Pennsylvania, when they hired me, they didn't really know where to put me. So I'm partly Wharton, partly psychology, partly political science in Annenberg. Um, so I'm a lot of different things. But it's really the – you're really studying the let, – let's just, for lack of a better phrase – you're studying the science of decision making. That we're we're studying human judgment and the extent to which human judgment can be improved using a variety of tools. Some of them drawn from psychology, some of them drawn from statistics, some of them drawn from organization theory. A lot of different tools. Mm -hmm. So, someone who wanted to go into that field, what advice would you give them? I would say. Um, that there is no clear path to where I am right now. Mm -hmm. um, that it's 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 not clear to me um, where you would go because the work I'm doing is so weird and interdisciplinary. It doesn't fit into any of the existing university niches. Which is kind of uh, funny because most university niches have become more and more specific and more and more narrowly focused. And you're going the opposite direction, pulling from three distinct, plus the whole quantitative side of it, three distinct areas of, of practice with a heavy math overlay. Yeah, I, I don't claim to be much more general than many of the specialists, my specialist colleagues. I think I'm just more specialized in a weird way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I, my work is very specialized and focused. It just draws on different components of different disciplines in a very focused way. Um, so That's intriguing. Uh, I, I think people who do interdisciplinary work, you know, they're not Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, they, they, there aren't any Leonardo da Vinci's as far as I can tell right now in the university world. Uh, um, what, what we what we do is we 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 and we need to carve out you know very specialized research programs that deliver uh, have tangible deliverables. Uh, that that we, we were really on a tight accountability leash in this forecasting tournament. It was a, you know, we had we were, we were submitting forecasts 9 a.m. Eastern time every every day. It was a it was a very rigorous process, and we needed to have a very focused group. Tangible deliverables and a focused process. That that seems like that's of great value to both business and government. Final question: What is it that you know about forecasting today? that you wish you knew when you started down this road 30 years ago? Well, what I wish I knew, what I, what, so the early work was mostly about cursing the darkness. It was about cognitive bias 
and how we're prisoners of our preconceptions, how we have a heart that we're too quick to make up our minds, we're too slow to change them. It was a rather dark portrait of human nature. Um, and there's some reason for being pessimistic, uh, given the way mm-hmm. we think about um, politics and history and, 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 and economics for much of the time. Um, the later work has been more about lighting candles. It has a more upbeat flavor, uh, that there are specific things you can do to become more open-minded, at least about relatively near-term futures. And if you can become more open-minded about relatively near-term futures, maybe you can become a little more open-minded about medium and longer-term futures. Maybe you can be uh, better able to see how alternative perspectives might have some merit. Um, and I think that when you feel you're in competition with the other side, and the other side might be getting to the truth faster than you, uh, that has a very salutary effect. I, I, th- I think it, it will tend to make us a bit more open-minded. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time, Professor Tetlock. Uh, we've been speaking with Professor Philip Tetlock of the University of Pennsylvania, um, both Wharton and other schools, author of Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of prediction, as well as expert political judgment, how good is it, how can we know, and a number of other books. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you'll see all of our other 83 or so um, previous conversations. Uh, I want to thank Mike Batnick for doing the deep dive and helping me uh, on the research with this. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.